This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, RRR brothers and sisters. I am Dr Doolittle and we have a special long weekend show for you. Our topics are as diverse as they are fascinating. Even if I say so myself, we'll explore the links between nutrition and mental illness. We'll debate laws about legalising marijuana and whether we need a regulator. We'll talk about sexist behaviour in hospitals and we'll consider raising the legal drinking age. Joining the panel this morning, we have a cast of megastars. First up, probably our biggest megastar, or not probably, Catherine Devaney is a writer, comedian, social commentator and public speaker, as well as Brunswick legend and friend of Triple R. We have Dr Jerome Saris, a nutrition and mental health expert from Melbourne Uni. He's here to, he's here, um, to tell us a whole lot about nutrition, and we're going to interview him about uh, what his work is and how he does it. We've got our trusty lawyer, Lex Judah Carter. He's uh, a Melbourne lawyer, Lex. He's got all sorts of special interests, but in fairness, his two biggest are probably health and human rights. He's a pretty good guy. Also joining us is our young, roving reporter, Master Doyle. He turns 21 soon. Ooh, hippie hooray. And he's going to talk about raising the legal, the legal drinking age to 21. It sounds more like he's raising the drawbridge after he's crossed the moat to me. But anyway, I am Dr. Doolittle, and I'm a psychiatrist and chief button pusher this morning. Let's say hello to everyone. Catherine, you start the ball rolling. How are you? Oh, look, I have just recovered from shingles, so um, I'm pretty... <coughs> it's bizarre getting shingles. It's very hard to diagnose, and it sounds like it kind of scurvy or consumption or the vapors oh, or something. And um, I've just come in from um, Hobart, where I ran a Gunners Masterclass last yesterday, which was, um, which was great. It was great for a couple of reasons, because I bumped into Peter Reese at the airport and on the way to Hobart. And no wonder you got shingles. No, no. Here's the thing. He kissed me, and he may have shingles now, so you're welcome. <laughs> everything, everything's great. Um, Strictly speaking, he would get chicken pox, not shingles, I think. Is that correct? Mm. You know, I got shingles once when I went to a conference, and uh, I, you know, talk about, you know, you don't want to trust email. I emailed one of my mates who's a senior dermatologist. That probably gives away who it is to everyone who knows me. He emails me back, you know, all the way over there. I'm over there. He emails me back and said, if you had your HIV status checked lately? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talk about jump to the rare cause of shingles and make me panic while I'm over there. Well, I hadn't, but uh, anyway, as it turned out, my shingles went away quite it's, safely. It's pretty awful, though. It's, yeah. it's awful and it's hard to diagnose. One of the things that I picked up about it is they say, so if you've had chicken pox, you can get shingles because it just kind of yeah. lives in the it's body. The and they'll pox. say, it flares up if you are run down or you're stressed. But that's actually the way doctors say, we're not entirely sure why it happens. If anybody, mm. if, if, if I'm in an office with a GP, or a doctor or any medico who says oh, this occurs because of stress or because of um, tiredness. I just walk straight out. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying we don't know why it happens. We know what we can do to treat it, but we're not. Nothing is caused by. I know the immune system is not as good when it's stressed, but I'm stressed all the time. I've got like yeah. I have a busy life and lots of kids. If that was the case, I'd be coming down with everything. And, and yeah. is it going to recur? I mean, is, it, is shingles one of those things that... Yeah, it can. And um, I, here's the thing. I rang up my GP because it was really, really awful. My GP missed it. My um, Chinese medicine practitioner saw it straight away. But I... Um, Give me my card, Catherine. That's what you need. You need a card. You're a lawyer. It's straight away. <laughs> and I rang up and I said, um, I'd like to... I've got shingles at the moment, but as soon as they're over, can I get a vaccination? And, um, and my partner too, because it's really rotten and it really knocks you out. And you can have awful, awful complications if you don't just sit still, take the antivirals and, you know, look after yourself. And they said, oh, no, um, I just spoke to the doctor. It can't come back. And it's like, well, not according to everyone else. Because once you've had it, it's no point vaccinating. Yes, there is. There is. There is. There is point vaccinating according to all the stuff that I read. I think there's there's more strains of it that you can get. Because I think there's five strains of chicken pox. I think we'll have to say, hold this space and we'll get an infectious (laughs) disease person to comment next time. Because, anyway, I'm... I'm not suggesting you... I had shingles a long time ago, so my knowledge is a bit old, and I haven't read up much since then. But shingles is the the thing you get after chickenpox. So you've had chickenpox at some stage. The virus hangs around in your body. At some stage, it comes back. You get a rash. It's sore. The main complication, I thought, was um, post-herpetic problems, like, for example, pain and stuff like that. But but not that many people Not according... Have a look at that. And I know you can get the shingles back. I think it's rare as hen's teeth, though, I thought. But I'm really amazed to hear there's a vaccination. Someone's actually buzzing me right now. I bet you it's an infectious disease person. It is. Let's see what they've got to say. Thanks. Someone's buzzing me. 
Unfortunately, they've buzzed me in and said, you're wrong. Me? Yes. Or you? You. They've gone for she's wrong, which really? I assume they mean you. <laughs> yeah, typical. It was International Women's Day yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Get over anyway, it. We'll come back. We'll come back to that topic, because I obviously am not an expert in it, but the person who texts me in is a big expert in it. He's a so, on the show. So he time. reckons. So <laughs> what would he know? Him and his jolly qualifications. Yeah, he's not going to come on here and put him on the line, is he? Let's say, um, Lex, you've already said hello, so come and say a proper hello to the, our well, um, brothers and sisters. It's nice to be here to add some serious uh to this program, you know, it really does need the gravitas that the law brings. But to we've medicine got the gravitas of the whole of the internet, of the whole mm. of you know the listeners texting in with their comments and what. But let's also say hello to Jerome, Jerome Saris. Thanks for coming in today. Not a problem. Happy to be here. I'm shingleless, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I can't really add much to the so far. And I'm, exactly. And I'm right. tipping you're going to have to fight to get a word in edgewise between Lex and um, the great Catherine Devney, which is a good thing. I can relate. But mate. quite hard. It's okay. Me and the, uh, the boy wonder over there will yeah, go out. Yeah, we hear from the boy wonder. Come on, he's just <laughs> 21. No, it's about to remember. No, no, uh, actually... Um What's his name again? Lex. Lex is right. Uh, I just you turned 21. 21. I missed it. It was yeah. Thursday, but it's good to see you keeping track of uh, the people that help you on your show. I consider, you, I consider you like a son, and I've missed your 21st birthday. You know that means you don't get a present. Yes, I, I know. still owe, In fact, the person who texted in, I still owe a 21st. Oh, no, I think it was an 18th. I still owe some present to his daughter. Don't I, I, I just I'm hope, hopeless. I just hope you weren't there at the time he was conceived. That's all for his sake. Well, I know just by video link. Oh, that's disgraceful. Oh, oh, good um, Lord. Go ahead. What are you talking about today before I get myself, myself in any trouble? Uh, well, I thought that given that I turned 21 um, a few days ago, that um, I would have a look at... Thank you. Happy birthday to me. But um, I was thinking uh, it might be a good time to revisit whether the minimum legal drinking age in Australia should be raised to 21. Yep. Now, um, I know you have a bit of an aversion to first-time studies, do little, but um, that is what I'm using as uh, the basis, my introduction, essentially. Uh, it's a analysis from the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs from January this year, which says that um, when New Zealand tried lowering their drinking age, going the other way, in 1999, uh, researchers were able to document a greater number of emergency emissions for some severe intoxication, more alcohol-related traffic crashes um, among people as young as 15, and more increases uh, in alcohol consumption among people as young as 16. Compare this to America, where between 1982, um, when, they, when it became federal law for every state, to have the MLDA 21. So they've had it since 82. Yes. And they, um, they increased... Did they... Do you know... Yeah, they, they probably had multiple there ages a and they of, became uniform at 21, did they? Yeah, essentially. Like, mm. um, it was during the Ronald Reagan administration where um, basically uh, a lot of states that didn't already have the age of 21 were coerced into doing it through right. a couple of reforms. Um, and uh, in that time, in the first 13 years since those laws were put in place, teen drinking and driving rates dropped by 50%, essentially. They, they halved. And uh, a lot of other studies since have found that higher legal drinking ages have led to less alcohol consumption in the United States. Uh, 36% of college students said they'd engaged in binge drinking in uh, 2011, one of the studies, compared with 43% from a similar study 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, so I, bring, I bring all this up basically to say that um, obviously there is a case for having a higher minimum legal drinking age. Um, Obviously, I say that now because it doesn't apply to me. But um, so obviously, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you're one of the few researchers or reporters of research that doesn't have a vested interest in the outcome. I mean, you're really saying my hands are clean. Yeah, that's true. My hands are completely clean. I just think those bloody teenagers who think they can drink now. Yeah, that's they're, um, they're a disgrace. But what I about the arguments against? You've hit us with some arguments for. Mm, well, you got uh, much against? Well, uh, given this is a medical-based show, I don't have that many arguments against. All the, all the medical research would point to uh, it's saying that, um, yes, this is a good idea, but um, what, what this research doesn't consider, I think, are the um, social factors surrounding alcohol here in Australia, which would make it very difficult from either a legal or a social um, perspective to ever see laws like this pass here. For example, the government collects um, around $9 billion from alcohol taxation every year, and uh, basically um, alcohol is part of... Um, Australia's cultural fabric, for better or for worse. Um, Professor Rob Moody from Melbourne Uni um, estimates that Australians consume about 10 litres of pure alcohol every year. So uh, this is, um, I suppose, this is where an argument against sort of starts to formulate because um, there's uh, a, a lot of difficulty ever seeing um, this culture changing 
given how deep-rooted it is. Um, I can see you gesturing to other panel members. How would you like to bring them in, Doolittle? No, no, no. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't I was very seeing if anyone wanted to come in and just abuse you. No, I'm Yeah, kidding. here we go. Um, I... I uh, think it's a great idea to put up the drinking age, but it won't happen. Um, I would, uh, further back looking at this issue, I would like to have a science-based drug policy and not one based on ideology. So even if we... Australia's not going to bring this in, and you, you just talked about two things about how entrenched it is in our society, drinking. Look at how entrenched smoking was in bars, in restaurants, in hospitals, and we've been able to manage that really well. As a mother of three boys, I'd much prefer them smoking pot than drinking alcohol. And if you look at the harm minimisation... Um, like alcohol, ice, um, heroin and cigarettes are the, are the the substances that cause the most harm across the board. As far as um, getting taxes is concerned, I mean, I think that Australia could be totally turned around by what let's legalise marijuana, let's grow it. Let's tax it and let's uh, legalize. Let's um, let's tax religion, which costs the country, costs Australia thirty billion dollars a year. Not the charity part, just the tax-free exemption for the promotion of religion. Well, the argument on um, on on deriving taxes doesn't work for smoking because the cost of fixing up smoking illness is way beyond anything you collect mm. on the taxes and it must be the same with alcohol. Yeah. What's, what's, there's no point worrying about the revenue if it's costing us you know, people who have got one punch life sentences in nursing homes uh, because of alcohol. You know, What's that going to cost the community? I think that um, the points that um, you Lex and uh, you Catherine raised just then sort of um, again go back to the uh, basically the point underpinning the whole debate which is from a a strictly research, medical research perspective, this makes sense. But when you consider the, the social factors and um, how difficult it would be to legislate, to put changes in place, to reduce um, the um, basically the part of the cultural fabric that alcohol is in Australia, it doesn't make as much sense. Good in theory, not in practice. Well, so yeah, one, uh, one thing which is commonly said is that you know, somebody can go out and fight a war then go out and shoot somebody and the guy can't have a beer afterwards. So, you know, age of 18, you can go out and you know, go into combat. But I think socially there is a, a skewed way of looking at it. And as, as everybody's been saying, it's, it's almost a moot point because it's very hard to see, probably unlike smoking, where you can really see the, the damaging aspects rather than, the I guess, the, uh, the social elements, which, I mean, having a moderate uh, drink is appreciated by, I think, most segments of society. You know what, this idea of the moderate drink, I know very few people who do it, this idea of just having a glass with their meals. Either people just don't do it or, like, have a night off or have a few and really just, you know, just kick back. But I am furious that we don't have a science-based drug policy, so it's really interesting that you're talking about the evidence says this and, mm. and let's just apply it to Australia. Since when has Australia ever used science-based and not ideological-based arguments? to legalise the substances that we use. Well, we should also consider just briefly that um, this issue... Uh, sorry, I did a little... Um, this won't take too long, but um, the, the focus should time. also be on... Um, on the, people, on, on the people who, <laughs> on, on the people who this um, particularly affects, which is um, people in their early twenties, just coming out of teenage years, and um, another issue here is how the human brain doesn't stop developing until you're in your mid twenties, almost. And so, if you consume too much alcohol before, then it can reserve results in ir irreversible brain changes that can impact decision making and personality. So. There's also um, that aspect of public health we have to consider. So why not part make it 25 then? If you, if you yeah. Baby steps, I think. But just part of the problem here is I, I hear, I hear your um, call for a science-based drug policy, but part of the problem is the science is always sketchy. And so it always gets interpreted by people invariably who have some sort of agenda. For example, D Master Doyle's evidence today, you know, his, his evidence is focused entirely on 18 and 19-year-olds. We don't know if that just pushes the problems to 21, 22-year-olds. We don't know what the overall effect is. We don't know if there's a consequence of prohibition by blocking the 18 and 19 year olds who then go out and do other things and maybe drink in secret and drink in less mm. um, um, well-known ways. And also when pe and all the other little bits and pieces of evidence, there's always a whole story behind it and the story isn't ne off is normally not nearly as clear as they make out. Like for example, your brain develops towards 25 sort of one. You know, that's the latest fashion. But still, you know, I'm not even convinced of that. You know, I think, you know, look, these are, a lot of these are ideas that then get into the popular press and so people form strong views based on them 
I'm not convinced that we have the strong enough evidence. I think we do in some areas. I'm not sure that we do in this. Well, look, I'm on this program to speak at three minutes to 11 on um, medical marijuana. Okay? Don't forget, <laughs> malpractice is away today because <laughs> it won't no, no, So we're running to time. wants to hear me come back at three minutes to 11. But the issue uh, for there is we've got all these inquiries looking at whether we should have medicinal cannabis. No inquiry as to the effect of alcohol on young people. I mean, when, is, when are we going to get a Victorian law reform report or a Senate inquiry into the effects of alcohol on people under 25, where we can get proper evidence. No one even thinks. Lex, that's not that. Australian, mate. It's not Australian. It's not Australian. It's not Australian. Because if you're young enough to vote, you're young enough to have a beer. I like recently, you're young to shoot. I recently, uh, I, I stopped drinking for three and a half years. It was an accident. I'm not a massive drinker, but it, it went to. It had to do with a spinal injury and an appearance on television and stuff. Anyway, gave up for a week. Gave up for a year. Gave up for three and a half years. It's really interesting. Australians' attitudes to you when you don't drink. We have alcohol is a shocking drug uh, when it's used badly, which it often is, and the attitudes towards people who are not drinking socially, there's a very, very high um, a, a high profile politician who every single person listening to this would know, and we went out to have a meal with this person and he was meeting my partner for the first time and, I, and said, what would you guys like to drink? And I said, we'll just have soda water or, you know, lemonade or whatever and said, no, no, I'm going to have a beer, you have one with me. And I said, we're not drinking. And this politician said, I would have preferred him if he made you wear a burqa. As opposed to... Because we got together and I stopped drinking about the same time and he just came on the bandwagon as well with yeah. me. And he was joking, sorry, I've said it's a he, but it doesn't really matter yeah. because most of them are he. Yeah. But I started talking about uh, being a politician and drinking and I said, are there many non-drinking politicians? And he said, not many at all. He said, by this time of night, I, was, I generally have been offered about 12 drinks at this stage as part of the lubrication of my job. Oh, it's a complex... You're quite right. It brings into people's upbringing, social values, medical things, political things. It's a tough one. But, Master Doyle, you've brought in a controversial one for your first appearance back here this year. Thank you for coming in. What can I say? I'm here to, I'm here to uh, disturb the beehive, Doolittle. <laughs> and that you were doing. Hey, and if we had time, we've gone over time in the discussion, we would sing Happy Birthday. I hope you know that. I hope you go away knowing that we would have sung Happy Birthday if we had time. That's OK. I'm going to go drinking now. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Hey, we wanted to have a quick chat just in our, you know, catch-up soapboxy style se- section at the start about this article, which I wish I had pulled out during that advertisement, that was in the um, Age today. Um, someone save me, save me whilst I'm... Ah, oh, here it is. It's entitled, Senior Surgeon Gabriel McMullen Stands by Advice for Female Doctors to Stay Silent on Sex Abuse. And it describes a case in Sydney where a um, doctor um, made a complaint about sexual harassment and apparently then subsequently couldn't get a job in any hospital in Australasia and then, to, and then um, this surgeon from Sydney came out last week and said her advice to young doctors is just to accept any, um, any uh, sexual advance. She, that's what she essentially said from my reading, whether or not... She said he, she would have been better off giving the guy a blowjob. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and, and uh, because it was damaging to the, her careers. I, I read this article just this morning for the first time um, when I woke up and, and you know, almost fell out of bed. I just could not believe when I read this advice. I thought it was the most appalling advice I'd, I'd ever heard. And um, there was lots of backlash to it a couple of days ago, but she's come out in the paper today saying, look, she stands by her advice. And so I, I was shocked. I mean, my area of medicine, psychiatry, has been at least 50-50 women for a long time, and uh, so I was really surprised to hear this. So I, anyway, I, I actually rang a female surgeon on my way in here just to get some comments, but I wanted to hear what you guys thought about it all first. Well, um, my view is it's uh, bad advice, and um, I think it sort of shows an, an ignorance of the law, and doctors aren't very good at um, sticking up for themselves legally, and that's, I guess, partly why I'm interested in being on this program, because um, they're not, they, don't, they don't look after their legal health as well as their body health, and for example, um, just remember the, the uh, Christy Fraser Kirk case um, in 2010. She sued uh, Mark McGuinness, who was, I think, then the CEO of uh, David Jones, for $37 million for sexual harassment in the workplace. And it's, there was an out-of-court settlement, which is believed to be $850,000, and he's now working alongside Solly Liu in the, back in the industry. But no one will ever forget the, the example. But the question is, has Christy Fraser Kirk's career been harmed? 
harmed by that case. She was criticised at the time for asking for $37 million, but, I mean, it certainly got it on the front page of the paper. But the fact is that there are laws uh, that protect women who face sexual harassment. Uh, Marcia Neve did a landmark report on it for the Law Reform Commission about 10 years ago. Um, it ought to be dusted off and we ought to have a, another look at it. Um, there are ways you can you make a complaint and not have it disclosed. Um, it's just, um, I think it's too easy to say um, the, that the system fails you, forget it, um, just effectively lie back and think of England. That's not what's required here. Um, and I think what the discussion we've just been having about smoking and alcohol, the community's view on sexual harassment I think is changing and um, it's very important that women who experience it step up to the plate and, and expose it. I was torn when I read it. It reminded me very much of somebody saying to Ricky Gervais, you know, how do I get famous? And he said, kill someone. Um, and his point was, this is this is the way that you get famous. And the way that I read it, like, absolutely, it's appalling advice. It goes without saying. And what if she's in that situation? She'd be going, this is wrong, this is what happens, and this is what we should do about it. We should get a fund together and a legal team and, you know, committees so that this is handed, handled um, with better. And I've, I felt that she was saying, look what happened to her in that case. Mm. If you look at the facts, you know, if she wanted, you know, there's the toss-up in the industry as it stands. I mean, of course I thought it was appalling advice, but the thing that really stands out to me is that um, Dr Tan, who won her case, was um, apparently unable to get a job in the entire Australasia. And there can be... You'll often hear people saying things like, in this situation, exactly as Monica Ducks wrote... Um, in the newspaper yesterday about being called crazy to dismiss someone who she wrote precisely about this. She was in a situation where she'd been harassed at work and um, the person had theft up to the harassment, had apologised in a very dignified way but these bully boys had just gone through her. Someone else ended up working there and they dismissed her as crazy for doing that. So um, Professor, so Dr Tan apparently hasn't been able to work which is really awful and um, is it because of this case or are they saying look it's not because of the case she's just not up to it or she's just a bit crazy that's the thing with sexism these days that it's generally far more insidious than it once was it wasn't as simple as going well that's not fair she can't work when she gets married that's not fair he gets paid more as a second year primary school teacher as her but it's the insidious thing and it's the language which is often used it's I say all the time men speak women are outspoken men have mouths women are mouthy. Men have opinions. Women are opinionated. Men are bosses. Women are bossy. Women are strident, feisty, bitter, crazy, deranged. It's those kind of things that can be used to gouge at and, and they can go, oh no, it wasn't the sexual harassment thing, it's the other thing. But we're never going to know exactly what motivates it. I think it's incredibly sad. I think it's not surprising. I understand, particularly like in areas like medicine, but there are particular areas where it's more sexism is more rife. And it was just, it was a horrible horrible read and uh, I mean it's going to be banging around in my head for the next couple of weeks. Yeah and I guess the, the thing that's really tricky about it is the um, surgeon involved was obviously speaking out against sexism and yeah. doing her best to raise awareness yeah. of the problem. My guess is her um, her advice just came out slightly wrong mm. or, or the, that, that's my guess. Although no, she's said, saying give up. She's telling them to give up. I know which I'm, I just I'm, I'm surprised she's come out backing it up and not reworded. I'll be interested to see if we, if we actually see something outside newspapers where we get to hear or speak and give some nuance to the argument she's trying me to say. Too. But interestingly, I did, I did speak to a um, surgeon, you know, so I did the phone call, the phone, <coughs> phone around. I got onto one female surgeon this morning, very senior surgeon in Melbourne. She was surprised too. She said um, that she hasn't seen big problems in Melbourne, but then, of course, it's hard to know. She thought the problems were much more, the bigger problems were things like um, how do you balance a family and it's so there's so much favouritism towards male surgeons who can offer to work 60 hours a week and not take any time off. So she thought a lot of those things were the bigger issue. She thought that, though, that most... She thought that Sydney did have a particular problem, although she didn't want to single out any one place, but she did wonder about whether... She, she said Sydney was a little bit notorious for being 20 years behind everywhere else when it came to some of these issues. And that, When you um, say some of these, you're talking about sexism? Sexism in hospitals, mm. in particular among surgeons and, and female surgeons leaving Sydney to work elsewhere. But, you know, that, that, that's hard to... It's always hard to know because these things often go in your back, own backyard and because you're so acculturated to the place, you don't see it. 
it. That's why it made me wonder, you know, what goes or on in my department. other excuses are used. Yes. So it, that's, the, that's the thing. Just just undermine them in another way. Go, no, no, I was, I was glad she won that. She's just not up to it. She's just a bit crazy. She's a little bit deranged. Um, I know this is slightly off topic. There was a fantastic thing on the ABC and um, about uh, mental health within people in the medical profession. I think mm-hmm. I might have sent it to you, Doolittle, about how it's dealt with and how in, um, in, in Melbourne or everywhere, I think, other than Western Australia, that you have, as another medico, you have to um, cough up and let people know if someone's under par, if they've got issues that people should That's know about. That's Australia-wide now. No, well, it wasn't. West, they were going yep. over to Western Australia to get treated. And it's just, it's horrible the way that people are not able to, in the medical profession, cough up to um, mm. the issues that yep. they're having That's with true. mental illness because people, and it's, it's within the culture, but it's also with patients expecting um, doctors to be infallible and know everything and be bulletproof and not suffer the kind of things which are just like, oh, what have you got to be depressed about? What have you got to be have diabetes about? What have you got to have psoriasis about? It's just exactly the same as all those things. I, I, I just wonder what the um, employers involved in all this is. I'm not familiar with the facts about Dr Tan's case, <coughs> but if a if a doctor uh, was being sexually harassed at work, the, the, uh, and they're employees of um, of the hospital, and there's a chief executive, and they should have a policy around sexual harassment. Um, so, you know, what, what's the hospital doing about that? Um, any any loss suffered by the doctor as a result of the of the failure of the hospital to implement a sexual harassment policy is actionable. Um, you know, what, what's happened? I mean, to what extent has the hospital actually done anything about this? Um, I, I just don't believe um, it just stops at the doctor, you know, the responsibility for raising this is not just with the doctor. But True. Lex, the, the thing is that legal le- action is exhausting and it's expensive and a lot of people just say what's winning, you know, I want to move I want to move on. Applying for jobs is pretty exhausting too when you can't get one mm. and, and, you know, it's really uh, there has to be, there has to be uh, buy-in from management. If mani- I mean, management can't have policies and not, not really uh, give effect to them when things like this happen. Side so, comment, so, Yeah, so, I mean, really, with that comment, wh- what's going to come of this? Wh- is that going to sort of stir things up that it will draw more attention and create change, or, or, or is she just going to cop it and, you know, nothing's going to come of it? I'm hoping, that, like you, that this leads to a light being shone on this. Shone on this. I, I want to know if it's a problem at all hospitals. I want to know what the reporting is. I want to know how many people in hospitals are aware of the policies that, Bill, that Lex has mentioned. And th- that's what, you know, I think we... We need to know a little bit more, but I think it's fantastic that it's hit the headlines. Yeah, and let's too. just hope it doesn't um, fizzle out and nothing more comes of it. Hey, we're going to co- come back and talk to um, Jerome about nutrition and mental illness. Um, so stay tuned, everyone. You listen to Radiotherapy. It's Sunday morning. Three. Triple. Ah. Jerome. Hello. It is so nice to have you in here. Let me just tell everyone a little bit more about you because I only gave you a mini intro at the start. And I hope I've got this all right because I've copied it off that um, computer thing in my bedroom that's apparently connected to all these other computers in the world. Jerome Saris is a Senior Research Fellow at the University of Melbourne. He has nutrition and integrative medicine qualifications and applied it all in a PhD in psychiatry. He has around 100 publications in all sorts of fancy journals and piles of high profile grants. It was over four million bucks worth. I counted up using my limited mathematical skills from places like the NHMRC. His work covers a broad range of topics around nutrition, complementary medicine and mental health and in particular around the problems of depression, anxiety and insomnia and on top of all that is the founding chair of the International Network of Integrative Mental Health. Pretty impressive Jerome, did I get it all right? Uh, yeah, is this for me? Is it <laughs> yeah, isn't it good when you hear yourself um, read out of it? No, it is. <laughs> uh, that four million bucks is not mine. I don't, I don't even get a coffee out of it. Do you so. get 10%? I love your car out the front. <laughs> yeah. oh, so it's got NHMRC on the number plate. <laughs> Oh, I love that with So uh, tell us a little bit about the sort of work you do. You know, did we, ca- did we capture it right then? What sort of work do you do as a, um, at Melbourne Uni? Yeah, look, uh, I'm just very passionate about researching anything related to integrated medicine, complementary medicine and mental health and in particular finding out ways which we can better treat some of these psychiatric disorders. I mean, medications are, are, are very vital and, and it's fantastic we have them as well as psychological therapies. But then there's some also some really good uh, evidence 
evidence-based complementary medicine approaches and I guess uh, from my personal perspective, my research perspective, trying to, I guess, advocate uh, for a more integrative approach, you know, to treating a lot of psychiatric disorders. So, we, you know, we do a range of uh, different types of research, um, but a lot of the research we do are randomised controlled trials, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, as well as... Um, so give us an example. What's, what would be a randomised controlled trial in this area? Yeah, well, I mean, we may, for example, I know listeners may have heard of CARVA, which is sort yep. of South Pacific medicinal plant. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. I was in Fiji, I drank some carver. It's like a local anaesthetic. It makes your mouth go numb and your mind go chilled. That's exactly right, yes, and, and your uh, bowels go loose. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit it's like a muddy, watery, uh, yeah. it doesn't taste the best. But we use a tablet form, for example. So we would give people with generalised anxiety disorder uh, this particular carver tablets for 16 weeks uh, or give them a placebo or a dummy pill, and then we'll rate their anxiety, say, every few weeks uh, on clinician rate scales as well as uh, self-rating scales, and, uh, yeah, work out whether this is effective or not for treating their anxiety. It's funny, there's a lot of um, stuff, um, old stuff, which is now coming back in to be used and thought of as uh, valuable and valid, you know, things like medical marijuana, things like carver, things like even LSD and clean MDMA, which is being used in, I think, Canada um, to to help with mental illness. Have you got any... So that's kind of still in the capsule form. What about... What about foods to eat? I mean, are you able to... I mean, if you look at food and preparation of food and being organised, it's not as... It's easier with patients to just give them a pill because they're going to carry that around in their pocket yeah, yeah, rather yeah. than to have them shop and have it all fresh and to be able to cook and consider the other people in the household or the people that they cook with. What stuff have you found out with everyday eating? Yeah, Is it just the boring stuff that we know? Look, it... it I guess this is the other part of our research which we're quite interested uh, in and we were pleased enough, we had a a paper published in The Lancet Psychiatry recently which was sort of an international collaborative uh, really advocating for diet to be seen as a critical part uh, of uh, people's awareness of mental health, having an impact on mental health. It's that old adage of you are what you eat. People think about it to do with, you know, cardiovascular conditions or digestive conditions, but they don't see the link commonly with mental health. However, we know there's really a a burgeoning uh, amount of research which is supporting the link between poor diet and poor mental health. What are the poor diets being what? Yeah. yeah. Well, poor di- I mean, being processed foods, you know, higher in, say, uh, refined carbohydrates, sugars, you know, low in, in, in whole foods. So what we're really saying is a good traditional whole food diet um, is where people, you know, should be going. Unfortunately, look, some of the data does, I say unfortunately, because I know a lot of listeners may be vegetarian and vegan, but does also support uh, the, the role of, of lean meats or at least having adequate protein, uh, and that can be controversial. On the topic of depression, should you change your diet, your nutrition, if you're depressed? Are there certain things you can do to help specifically with depression rather than just good diet to maintain good mental health? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, a lot of the time people, when they, they, they look at the cross-sectional data and they say, okay, there's a link between a poor diet and, say, depression, uh, but are we saying that people who are depressed are just having a crap diet? And, in fact, if you look at some of the uh, longitudinal evidence, there isn't a lot of it, but it is showing that people who have a poor diet will have some predi- um, prediction in terms of having a lower mood or uh, mental quality of life uh, down the track. So um, what we're saying is, yes, look, if people are experiencing depression or, 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 or you know, really any sort of mental illness um, or any, I mean, just regardless, people should be eating a good quality whole food diet. Uh, you know, It's so much easier said than done. I mean, I think that there might be a, a, a case for stuff like light, light and easy, which I've never used. But for people who are on their own or or not able to get it together with the cooking and, and stuff, that there should be, a, like, a service to provide those really, home, you know, those terrific home-cooked um, wholemeal foods, but also taking into consideration the other people in the household. Uh, when you're depressed, you, the last thing you often want to do is exert yourself at all. Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. all these other people. Sometimes it's just easier just going, look, let's just get a pizza and I'll knock up a salad yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And also when you're depressed, often people just go for comfort food because they're just so low they're reaching for a bit of toast another bit of toast you know a packet of mm. chips are there all uh, one supplements then for because i agree with you that's the problem and so you know they're, they're not in a, that's why the, as you said a minute ago catching the tablets are, or someone said the tablets are so easy yeah it is really easy pocket. yeah what rather than getting it together like is. i mean i really like i've got a big household and i really like doing the shopping and the cooking and all the rest of it and and even when i'm suffering depression i'm still pretty on top of it you know put some soup on cook 
cook a stroganoff, you know, put some curry on, knock up a salad. But not everyone is like that. And it is not just about knowing to cook. It's organisation, money, get being able to get out and about. And the other people in your household who might not eat the things, you, you know, you'll make the whole meal food that's great for your depression, but they mightn't eat that food and then they'll just be having, you know, those cheese dippity things and um, another bowl of, of uh, wheat bix because you're not putting on the food that they'll want to eat as well. Jerome, um, just taking up Catherine's point about, you know, large households, is this really advice for carers and others who are dealing with someone who's got depression or even hospitals where they're in a ward that they should be re-looking yeah. at the sort of diet that the, yeah. that the person who's got the depression uh, yeah, know, should have? Uh, abs- they, they shouldn't absolutely. expect to do it themselves. Yeah, yeah they, look, they, and this goes beyond, I, I guess, sort of a, uh, my, my research position, this goes more into public health, but what I'll say is your points are absolutely valid. The issues then tend to be, okay, we know we want to move people towards that, that uh, you know, good quality diet. How do we do it? Hospitals, big issue. Um, and yeah, you know, some, oh. Especially psychiatric hospitals, they, they can get served up a, a whole lot of garbage and yet, you know, and you've got vending machines everywhere. So absolutely that's an issue. I think education is a big issue. And then there's also economic constraints. Yeah, you know, sure. yeah good quality food, um, you know, it really can, 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 unfortunately, in many instances, cost more. So we have to address all those determinants, um, you know, which can get people towards that. I'd say that... Um, the evidence does actually not not necessarily indicate that if a person has got uh, maybe a, uh, says a milder form of a, a mental illness. Yeah, I'm not saying that you know they're severely you know, depressed. That can be an issue. Um, that necessarily they may have a have a worse diet. For some people, you know, it actually has the opposite effect. Yeah. They don't feel well. They want to change their life. It can be motivating. But <clears throat> absolutely, for other people, um, it can be an issue in terms of just you know getting the motivation to actually you know cook good food. Just um, on related but not quite related, how hard was it to get some sort of department of complementary or integrative medicine into a big institution like Melbourne University, into a conservative area like the Department of Psychiatry? I think it's great that you have. What, what, was that a tough gig? Yeah, well, I have to say it's not a department. My head of department would probably uh, kill me if, <laughs> if I said that. Yeah, look, oddly enough, people ask me that. It wasn't as difficult as you would think. And I think it comes down to, you know, if you're doing hopefully good quality, you know, uh, double-blind randomised controlled trials, the NHMRC vet it, they give you the tick universities and, and most academics and psychiatrists are actually quite open to it. They just want to see good science. So, you know, yeah, we've broken the glass ceiling a bit, I guess, doing more of that complementary medicine, integrated medicine research, but it, they've been pretty open. Is complementary medicine um, largely uh, the, one, the, the sort you're looking at from China or is it from all over the place? Because I, I, my experience of complementary medicine in China is it's more focused on organic illness, you know, uh, kidney problems, heart problems, stomach problems, not mental health problems well no they, they, they well in China they do certainly do uh, they're starting to do more mental health research in fact um, uh, we are having this more and more of an interface with China and Asia in, in trying to improve the, the mental health standards because you know it, it really has been something which has been stigmatised over there and, and yeah I mean the impacts are just are devastating but um, in terms of the medicines I mean I guess just to define it the medicines come from all over the world plant based medicines nutritional supplements and then some of the therapies could be acupuncture, could be yoga, mindfulness, meditation, um, a range of things. But I mean, later on, I'll be happy to or just quickly sort of have a bit of a, uh, a discussion, some recommendation for some supplements which people might be using if that's of, of interest. I don't know that we're going to have time to go into specific advice because um, uh, Lex goes extremely mad if we squeeze his topic too short, even though he speaks so much that we don't get to his topic in time and then he blames the um, person who's running the panel. Who could that be? I don't know. The muffin eater. Yeah, the muffin. Can we have some alternative? I think we need a mediator here. I think we'll get you back at some stage to go through some specific stuff and specific illnesses. Hey, Jerome, that's fantastic. Stick around because we're. Um because you've got nowhere to go anyway. What's your final comment? Yeah, final comment is we're actually conducting uh, a clinical trial at the moment if people do suffer from oh, uh, depression and they're, uh, they're taking uh, antidepressant medication and not quite getting the effect on their mood. Uh, it's just down at the Melbourne Clinic. Uh, you just have to look up nutrients 
depressionstudy.com, nutrientsdepressionstudy.com, and uh, yeah, feel free to join a free uh, clinical trial we're running there. This is so encouraging. I'm it so happy good. to hear this. Yeah, it's so important. I agree entirely. We say it to people all the time, but you know what? When they, when I say to people, you know, the five pillars of mental health, nutrition, sleep, exercise, stress levels yeah. and relationships. Absolutely. And when they ask me about nutrition, I look dumb and I, and I direct them to a website. So I'm loving that you're getting specific and doing all this research. We'll put a link to your study on um, the um, Radiotherapy Triple R Facebook page. Thank you. Now let's, we ask now everyone to take a deep breath because it's Lex's turn and he's got <laughs> a full I need a minute or two to wind up at the end, so you've got a full 10 minutes to do your topic. So can we all take a collective sigh throughout um, I the signed on for 20 minutes. I signed He's on eating for 20 into his time. I signed on for 20 minutes. Okay, I think I'll we go until 10 past 11. That's all <laughs> I can <laughs> say. Oh, Einstein and Gogo would love that. Okay, Lex, tell us what you Well, what I, you it's, it's a sort of segue into what Jerome's been talking about, and that is I thought I'd... I just give you a catch up on what's happening with um, with medical medicinal cannabis in Australia and in particular in Victoria, and you know whether or not we should be considering medicinal cannabis anyway. That's I guess another topic. But the, there are currently two inquiries going on in Victoria or in Australia on medicinal cannabis. One is the Victorian Law Reform Commission, which takes instructions from the Attorney General to investigate issues affecting Victorians and whether or not there should be a change in the law. And there's the Law Reform Commission. Um, is in looking at ways in which Victorian law could be changed to allow for the legalisation of medicinal cannabis for exceptional cases. So that's, uh, I think the Andrews government has, uh, it was one of their election promises to have a look at uh, medicinal cannabis and that's happening. And in fact, um, the discussion paper for that will be out on Monday week. Uh, so a week tomorrow, the Law Reform Commission will publish that. They'll be asking for submissions and hopefully um, people such as Jerome who work in this area of, you know, of, uh, you'd have to say medicinal medicinal cannabis was probably an alternative Therapy, yeah, look, it, yes, complementary yes. medicine, mm, sort of, sort of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the second is the Commonwealth. Um, there's a private member's bill in the Senate from Senator Richard Di Natale, a Green Senator, which is to introduce a new law into Australia called the Regulator of Medicinal Cannabis Act. Um, now that's under consideration, and the Senate is running an inquiry into this private member's bill. Um, submissions close next Friday on that. The law, the Law Institute of Victoria, is considering making a submission on that, which is why I'm involved through the health uh, law section of the Law Institute. So th- th- there's another inquiry and the, uh, the uh, Richard Di Natale Senate bill is quite interesting and uh, it's interesting because there's already the Narcotics Act um, which regulates the growing of um, opium, for example, in Tasmania and there's no reason why you couldn't gr- um, uh, regulate the growing of marijuana uh, under the same legislation as we regulate the growing of opium. So take us back a step. So what will, if they come up with the marijuana regulator, what will they do? Well, the regulator's job is to govern the production uh, of uh, cannabis, its manufacture, supply, use, its use in experimental situations, uh, its import and its export. So basically to, to control how it's grown, how it's manufactured, how it's used. For the medical, for medical uses, not for general use. For medicinal purposes only. Now the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, is, is really already existing to deal with uh, drugs and other uh, medical devices and, and pharmaceuticals. There is, if Denatale's bill gets through the Senate legislation, there will be two systems. There will be the Regulator of Medicinal Cannabis Act and there will be the TGA and you can use either. So it's, it's got a few... Yeah, what what they mean by using either is that, um, is that if you want to do your research and come up with a tablet that just has um, you know, one part of marijuana mm-hmm. in a THC or the cannabinoid or is pronounced wrong, CBD, um, yeah, CBD, you can still do your research, still make tablets, still run it through TGA, but yeah. the system that's available most in so many places in the world, Canada since 2001, 23 states in the United States right now, um, where people can use marijuana for medicinal purposes, um, that's what will go through the regulator because that can't go through TGA. The problem being that the pe- people procure or grow their own marijuana. So you, a doctor can't prescribe something where they don't know the dose and they don't know all of those issues. No. So the way it works is you go along to your doctor, your doctor approves, you know, you've got a condition that's, for which it's approved in this state slash country and then you go off in various, well, you either grow your own or you get it through some regulated it's like a health food store. Yeah, but you can, if you're running um, drug trials, you can do it through the TGA yeah. still, still, even though it involves unchanged. medicinal marijuana, or you and can do worth, it through the regulator. And it's worth noting the laws still stay in. So if you sell marijuana, you still um, 
uh, it's not go, legalizing no, marijuana. No, no, it's got nothing to do with legalizing. No. The laws, the criminal aspect of it, don't change, which is another debate yeah. in and of itself. And the, other, the other thing is that states can opt in or opt out. So. Um, if Victoria might decide to, uh, if the Senate passes this legislation, the Commonwealth legislation, a state can decide, to, yes, we'll be in this or we're not going to be in it. So it doesn't compel the states to, to uh, impose this regulation of medical marijuana. Can I ask, is it possible, and we, we, we wrote a paper on this, we're looking at some sort of psychotropic medicines and effects on, for example, anxiety. And one of the things we, we did sort of put out there, so why can't you grow a marijuana crop, cannabis crop, standardised for lower levels of THC you know and the problems we're having I think sometimes is far higher amounts of THC have the quite adverse psychotropic effects and have higher levels of the cannabidiol you know which can be some of those uh, therapeutic uh, cannabinoids so you could actually regulate it in a way that, that it could have the medicinal properties mm. you want. Well that's the sort of submission I think yeah. that um, the government's asking for the, the Senate inquiry and indeed the Victorian Law Reform Commission. We haven't made a decision in Victoria to introduce a law but the Law Reform Commission really wants Victorians to come forward by, um, once the paper's released on Monday week and say so what they think, you know, should there be um, permission to get a licence to do it and, and to, to regulate people in their homes doing it um, I would have thought not for medicinal cannabis I think it's going to be tricky. What's the medical view about it? I mean, how effective is cannabis in, in, in you know, treatment of certain conditions? Well, so it's been in the papers. Epilepsy, yeah. uh, pain relief, that mm. sort of thing. It's mm. been in the papers heaps lately and everyone's, uh, you know, from what I can tell, in fact, you know, I'm always saying I spoke to such and such. I spoke to a senior neurologist about this issue just that by chance last week. And, uh, I mean, the main areas it's used, it's, you know, look, it's fair to say it's relatively poorly studied because it's so politicised. You know, we can't get any studies into Australia, although that's being reviewed not right now. There's some government committees sitting right now trying to figure this issue out. So it's not well known. But the big areas are obviously nausea and pain, especially during chemotherapy for things like cancer and AIDS. Muscle spasticity, various conditions have muscle spasticity. Um, it's used as an appetite stimulant sometimes. Um, it's used for insomnia sometimes. The seizure story is a little bit complex because it's only a few really rare types of seizures where it's fantastic for and the rest it's hard to tell but the neurologists want to do some studies to find out exactly where it's useful and where it's not useful. But you can't now right because it's not regulated. No no, and it's been so politicised. We've had mm. governments that just said no we're tough on drugs there shall be nothing. I know plenty of people who um, self-medicate uh, anxiety really successfully with it and not necessarily in a smoking form but in an edible form really really successful and they just say I can operate like a normal human being I've tried everything over the counter mm -hmm. and from the prescription pad and this means that I can have a life have relationships hold down a job you know get my washing on the line get my retro paid mm -hmm. and um, because of you know it's I don't feel that I can even comment on it because I just think it's bizarre it's like okay so aspirin is bark from a tree, and I can buy that at a chemist. Marijuana is, um, you know, coming yeah. from the ground, but I can't. It's, it's interesting because of this pain relief issue. It seems to be a major problem where, where or traditional opioids just don't work for some people, and what do you do about it? In fact, the figures show that accidental overdoses from people on opioids for pain relief now exceed heroin addict overdoses wow. in Australia. Say wow. that again. Accidental overdoses of people uh, taking opioids for pain relief exceed the number of heroin overdoses in Australia. Oh yeah, well, um, prescribed opioids are a bigger problem than heroin. People but mind you, heroin has dropped off in methamphetamine. Can we just do definition here? So opioids are stuff like endone yeah. and yeah. oxycontin. And heroin is okay. an opioid. Yes. But yeah. it's, um, a, a, mind you, heroin has medicinal uses too. In, Absolutely. In they used to give it to birthing women. It was considered to be the best... Um, opioid for obstetrics and in yep. England it's still widely used yep. in certain situations but we're get, but just to get I just want to take up Catherine's point because you know we're talking about all the good bits about marijuana and all the benefits and there are a whole lot of people who have the negative view and you know to summarise their view just for the sake of debate um, you know the people worry about one the dangers of abuse and escalation of other drugs now there's a fantastic review written about this whole thing by um, David Pennington in the Medical Journal of Australia currently and you can get it online it's one of their open access articles he says that's nonsense. There's very little evidence for that and he says prohibition clearly doesn't work. The other big things that people worry about and which he says are a lot more real are the long-term cognitive effects of young people smoking too much, doing very little, having effects on their motivation. It also does slightly appear to increase your risk of psychosis, which goes away once you stop smoking it. Different to schizophrenia. There's been a debate about schizophrenia for decades and the evidence of schizophrenia the summary is that if you've got schizophrenia, it probably makes you have more relapse 
relapses. And if you're going to get schizophrenia, you may get it earlier, but yeah. it probably does not but cause schizophrenia. But smoking's not the only means of delivery of this Let drug. me just finish. The mm. negative sides are also all the other disadvantages of smoking because it's got a whole lot of other substances in it and stuff like that. And so there's definitely an argument against it. And most of the people like Pennington who are pro-medical cannabis, medical marijuana, they're not pro-necessarily widespread use. They're pro the medical uses. The widespread use is a whole different debate. Mm. I, have, I have a view on that similar to yours, I think, I think it's a level a of the debate. THC. I mean, the, I think you're getting up to something like 25% THC with these sort of hydroponic skunk varieties. <clears throat> I mean, back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, whatever, I mean, they're probably down to about 5%. So, it, you know, the concept of, yeah, have a, you know, smoking a joint back in the 70s is a hell of a lot different than somebody having this high-powered psychotropic, which can, as, as Doolittle was saying, uh, evoke psychosis in a certain percentage of people. So, I mean, surely we can regulate it that you can have a lower level of THC and, and, and work out what that level but is. So can we deliver it through a pill? It doesn't it have to be smoked. We're not mm. saying necessarily that it still has an effect. Still. Yeah, yeah, but you don't have to get into marijuana smoking to have medicinal cannabis. And I think the point you're making, um, uh, Lex, in particular, is if we had some sort of regulator who mm. could address all this with scientists on board, doctors on board, police, whatever, all the public, the interested parties, we could address it all. Great topic, though. I hope... Um, I'd, I'd love to see it get through. Is that the vote of everyone on the committee? So yeah, I mean, it's just let's get to the best possible place for the least amount of damage. And yeah, great absolutely. book called Chasing the Scream about the start um, the start and the end of the war on drugs. Have a listen. It's also an audio, audio book, Chasing the Scream. Oh, that's a good one. Um, can, I remind, uh, can I remind everyone to check out our Facebook page, Radio Therapy Triple R. Like us. You'll find out what's going on each week and you can comment and feedback. Um, we're going to just go around and say goodbye to everyone. Now, Catherine, though, first up, I want to know, are you doing, before we go, are you doing any um, comedy festival shows this year and what's happening with Gunners Masterclass? One show only, Pushy Women. It's on the 12th of April, which is the Breeze Ride Days. High profile women talk about their experiences on bikes. There's one show only, it's half sold out. Julia Morris, Claire Bowditch, Rachel Berger, um, Fiona Patton, Fiona O'Loughlin and Alicia. Sometimes they're going to be on at the Trades Hall on an Arvo, Sunday Arvo. Gunners Masterclass is going off and this week we have only one date left for the Gunners Rachel Berger stand-up Comedy Masterclass. Saturday is sold out, so next Sunday, the 15th of March, from 10 till 5, a stand-up masterclass for beginners, stand-up curious and professionals. Go and get skilled up. I did a masterclass with her 23 years ago when I started stand-up. I've wanted to do one since, so I'm running one under my banner. Go to my website. It's the Gunners Stand-Up Masterclass with Rachel Berger, and I cannot wait. I'm doing it next Saturday. I'm going to be in the class Saturday. There's still spots for Sunday. So am I, by the way. Mm. Hey, um... And so Alicia sometimes. Oh, wow. It's going to be a crowd. Jerome, thanks so much for coming in. Much appreciated. We'll get you back sometime to do those specific supplements and yeah, that'd you know, be great. some specific stuff. Um, Bring Lex, some stuff in. Lex, you don't some get to goodbye because um, the scientists from Einstein and GoGo are lining up and let's just scream it into the microphone as we speak. Hey, uh, scientists, sorry to have gone up 10 seconds over time. We love you like brothers and sisters. Um, see you soon, everyone. Bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.